This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is The Socialist Challenge Today by Leo Panich and Sam Gindin with Stephen Marr. The Socialist Challenge today presents an essential historical, theoretical, and critical perspective for understanding three important recent phenomena. The Sanders electoral insurgency in the U.S., the Syriza experience in Greece, and Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party in the U.K., The authors compellingly convey the importance of developing strategic and practical capacities to democratically transform state structures so as to render them fit for realizing collective democracy, social equality, sustainable ecology, and human solidarity. In the midst of intertwined global health and economic crises, and as the Sanders campaign continues to play an important role in shaping the response, this book offers socialists and other progressives an essential basis for reflection, assessment, and debate about where to go from here. The Socialist Challenge Today by Leo Panich and Sam Gindin with Stephen Marr, out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is not a natural disaster. It's a disaster that has been profoundly shaped by human society, politics, and economics. If we lived in a country and a world organized around principles other than profit and war, much of the health and economic crisis we are currently in might have been prevented. But the same system that led to COVID getting this bad is the same system that is managing the outbreak now that it's spreading everywhere. Profits are valued over human lives, and the people who are made most vulnerable to everyday capitalism are now most vulnerable to death and destitution with COVID, which in turn makes everyone more vulnerable too. Solidarity is prevention and cure alike. My guests today, Amy Kapczynski and Greg Gonzalez, wrote in a recent essay for the Boston Review, quote, The coronavirus is about to illustrate that epidemics are great levelers. They can collapse social classes, even if, as with all forms of collapse, the people at the bottom get the worst of it. Their analysis of what's going wrong and how we might set it right is informed by the movements that arose to confront the AIDS crisis, particularly ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was one of the most powerful and important social movement organizations of the 1980s and 90s. To prepare for this interview, I watched the incredible documentary How to Survive a Plague, which I highly recommend that you stream from home now. The film's creator, David France, also wrote a book, which I haven't read but has been highly recommended to me, How to Survive a Plague, 
the inside story of how citizens and science tamed AIDS. Before we get started, I've received many kind notes recently from you listeners about how useful the dig is for all of you struggling to make sense of things right now. And those notes are incredibly gratifying. And it's thanks to listeners, listeners just like you, supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig that this is all possible. As I mentioned last week, we are about to announce a call for pitches for a limited time series of audio essays, investigations, stories, interviews, whatever, on what the hell happened and what we're doing about it and what might happen. This is a project that will basically empty dig coffers. And so we will need your continued support to keep it all up. If you have steady income right now and you can afford to do so, please support us now with what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. Another thing that we're doing with our resources is launching dig virtual book clubs, which we hope will become regular in-person book clubs once this acute crisis has passed. If you're interested in hosting a dig book club by Zoom or whatever, please email dig communications coordinator Julia Rock at julia.rose.rock at gmail.com. That's julia.rose.rock at gmail.com. And also a shout out to Adam Bradley, who runs the Luke's House Free Medical Clinic in New Orleans, and who recently, when I was in New Orleans, truly warmed my heart by telling me about the dig book club he runs with his colleagues and interns. So, Adam, thanks for giving me this idea, and thank you for everything that you're doing in New Orleans to keep people healthy and safe. Okay, here's Amy Kapczynski and Greg Gonzalez. Greg is a professor in the Department of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases at Yale School of Public Health. For more than 30 years, he worked on AIDS activism with groups like ACT UP and the Treatment Action Group. Amy is a professor of law at Yale Law School and co-founder of the Law and Political Economy blog. She also co-directs the Yale Global Health Justice Partnership. Amy Kapczynski and Greg Gonzalez, welcome to The Dig. And Amy, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. You two wrote in a recent co-authored Boston Review essay, quote, The status quo brought us to this precipice, trying to push through it with the same tools and old ideas will have deadly consequences. I think that's a really important point, but as we have seen recently in the Democratic primary, the country's not just split between the the nationalist right and the socialist or progressive left. There are so many liberal voters, it turns out, 
who really crave a return to an imagined normal. And they're also huge swaths of people who, despite the Bernie campaign's efforts, will not readily budge from their well-earned alienation from electoral politics and politics more generally. The left is in many ways stronger than ever, but not anywhere close to strong enough when COVID hit. My opening question is, at this moment of crisis, how should the left navigate this dynamic between the radical right on the one hand and return to normal liberalism on the other? I mean, I think one thing about this epidemic, this pandemic really, is that it is providing a kind of x-ray of our society, right? And so one way to think about it is follow the virus, right? The virus is turning up both forms of interconnection and interdependence, um, and it's showing our incredible structural vulnerabilities. The virus is going to be possessing all of our attention, commanding all of our attention for certainly weeks, months to come. And as we think about um, how to understand what's going on around us and then how to act against it, I think, you know, we can try to sort of make more explicit what is already implicit in what we're seeing and how the virus is taking advantage of these vulnerabilities and um, and the kind of failures of our um, interconnection to really be organized around logics of care, right? And so, you know, one of the most acute places that you see this today is in prisons. There's an absolute catastrophe going down in Rikers, and it's just a matter of time until the virus, you know, really explosively expands in prisons around the country. And, you know, a lot of the response has been, you know, let's put people into lockdown, which is both incredibly inhumane and is not going to work. And that's going to put at risk not just prisoners, but also guards and the communities around them, right? I mean, this is a one, one small way that the virus puts on display how we have organized our society to make incredible vulnerability and vulnerability that's interconnected, right? So guards can't separate themselves from prisoners. They share uh, basic forms of humanity that are going to be interconnected in this process and that are going to um, be the, the the means by which this kind of, you know, this coronavirus is going to spread. So I think one way to think about it is to find the places where the virus is going to be most difficult to contain and cause the most damage, because those are going to be the places that our society anyway um, is failing to protect people. And those failures are going to show up much more profoundly successful ways of interrelating to one another. So, you know, there's a big push, obviously, to get people out of prison. And one of the challenges with that push is how to how to frame it in the form of a, say, non-reformist reform, right, that, that doesn't um, end up making the virus an exception, but that tries to make it an illustration of the ways in which we're failing each other on an everyday basis. So that's both the intellectual and political and strategic challenge of the moment, I think, is to to not let this moment just simply seem exceptional. Because the things that, and this is part of what Greg and I have been writing about, the things that it's turning out are the rules, not the exceptions, right? It's the the facts of forms of kind of social 
dislocation and lack of support that put workers in a position where, you know, they are um, not well organized enough, they're not powerful enough to demand basic things like sick pay, um, uh, where our society is not uh, structured in such a way that we can provide anything close to the response to prevent economic dislocation that is needed for the next couple of months, right? And so, uh, you know, there's an enormous challenge in dealing with how the Trump administration is going to itself seek to exploit this moment to try to put on display, you know, the dear leader in front of the cameras. So, you know, this is a long conversation that you started, right? How to respond both to the way that the the right is going to frame this and uh, the kind of uh, potential sort of totalitarian aspects of this moment and how people might respond to the virus, but also uh, figure out what it looks like to build a kind of positive ethic of care out of the the kind of wreckage of where we're in in the moment. So I'm hoping that we gain a little bit of discipline on the left uh, coming out of this crisis, because, um, you know, it's basically after World War II, there's a small group of conservative intellectuals who banded together that led us to this moment. You know, there was a book by Sarah Diamond that came out in the middle of the 90s called The Road to Dominion, Right-Wing Movements and the Political Power in the United States. And they talk about their slow march from the McCarthy era all the way up to the mid-90s where she stops her book about how they solidified power on the right. And they didn't do it by thinking that we're going to get it all today, um, that Medicare for all is going to happen with the elevation of a single presidential candidate, but thought in a much more plodding, methodical fashion about how to how to build power. And when you think of the people who are leading our, our coronavirus response, Mike Pence, Robert Redfield, Deborah Burks, they're all part of this dominionist uh, religious right movement from the 90s that is here with us 20, 25 years later. And so I think trying to get us through the, the the next few years has to do with a little bit of soul searching on our own in terms of building a movement to build progressive power that really sort of has an arc that doesn't start every four years in an election cycle, but but really thinks for the long game about how we're going to sort of reconfigure our, our world to sort of roll back what we've seen over the past 50 years that Amy and I talk about, which is a sort of neoliberal conservative uh, ethics and, and, and economics and politics, which has led us to this precipice. So I, I'm hoping that we will figure out how to sort of do some long-term strategic thinking um, now and over the next few months, um, because this is going to be a generational challenge. It's not going to be solved by mine or potentially the next one. It's really going to be take decades to, to get us where uh, the right started, you know, 60, 70 years ago. You both write about the recent calls from Trump and other conservatives, which have perhaps thankfully receded a bit in recent days, but these calls to reopen the economy before we have the pandemic under control, which in turn rests upon this this false pitting against one another of economic well-being on the one hand and health well-being on the other. You write, quote, Our typical indicators of the economy register our actions as a kind of collective suicide. Models of the economy, it turns out, do not incorporate the idea of staying home as productive of anything at all, not least avoidance of the negative externality of mass death. As long-standing critiques have insisted, figures such as GDP, which measure economic activity via the paid economy, also ignore the vast quantities of unpaid social reproductive labor without which society cannot survive. 
the economy that were offered in the usual take, measuring so little and commanding so much, is a death machine. Every climate activist, of course, could have told you this long ago. And, and about the solutions, you write, quote, the interventions that we should be laser focused on are those that meet people's basic needs for social reproduction directly. This debate over when to reopen the economy, how to, how to balance these equities, so-called equities, has been framed as a liberal versus conservative one. But, but explain your argument about how this, in fact, reflects a fundamental orientation of what is valued and what is rendered unvaluable under capitalism. You know, I think when we saw these arguments about, you know, sort of the economy versus our lives emerging, to, to me, that simply sort of replayed something which is, as you suggest, is deep within the logic of, of capitalism itself, right? So, um, you know, think about how Karl Polanyi describes the emergence of capitalism as fundamentally organized around the necessity of hunger and the manipulation of hunger as a means to require people to work, right? So, so there's something kind of sort of deep within the structure of, I think, the capitalist system, which has a kind of lack of respect for our humanity and the things that we share. That's, that's sort of one piece, um, obviously, of the, the background for how I'm thinking about this, but but there's another piece of this, which is about more particular contemporary modes of measuring the economy. So what counts as the economy and how uh, how have we kind of reified or turned into a thing, this economy that, um, you know, so that we've created something which it, it really genuinely conservative voices are arguing should should take priority over us, right? So I, mean, I think the, the obvious way to think about the problems of the moment and the economy more generally is that we want human beings to thrive. And that requires us to be able to do a lot of things in cooperation. Some of that's production, some of that's reproduction. And so we need to organize our societies and our collectivities in ways that allow us to thrive. Sometimes people think that's what economics is doing, but if you get up close to the way that economics is organized as a mode of thought, so for example, what counts as efficient behavior, or if you get up close to how economic statistics are organized, it actually doesn't reflect uh, the sort of broader ethos of um, sort of helping us figure out how to organize our societies to allow us to produce and reproduce in ways that we want, right? So the basic point, you know, embedded in the paragraphs that you read about social reproduction is one that feminists have been making for a long time, that nothing um, that is unpaid in the home counts towards GDP, and yet it is profoundly important for our ability to both have an official economy and our ability to thrive and survive as a species. So, you know, this is the, the sort of joke that we refer to when a man marries his housewife, GDP, you know, goes down because she's now not being paid for the work that she's doing. So the same exact work doesn't count as work if it's done inside of the home. And also on top of that formally economic care work, that, that care work that is considered formally economic is is feminized and devalued and, and, and paid lower wages, what, even when it is does take place in the workplace. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're seeing this now, right? All these workers who are being told that they're essential, so essential that they have to risk their lives to go out and work for the rest of us so that we get our packages and so that we get our 
you know, our takeout and so that we have, you know, nursing care in, uh, in home and in hospitals, you know, all of those workers are being treated as essential now and required to work. And yet they're not being afforded anything like the kind of compensation that would be, um, you know, w would be how you would expect a market to behave for something that's truly essential. And there's a lot of reasons to think, some ways to think about those problems. But at a very basic level, there's, there's a really stark just fact that even though at the moment we're all acting to, our, to the best of our ability, and I think to a really extraordinary degree, not all of us, but many of us acting out of sort of an enormous surge of solidarity and that this counts and when you look at the numbers that get measured as the economy only as disaster. Now, obviously, many people are in terrible straits precisely because they rely on their weekly income to be able to pay the rent and buy groceries. But there's all kinds of things that once we break out of the idea of the economy as a machine that works in a certain kind of way that we can do to ameliorate that. So it turns out you can cancel the rent, right? I mean, this is one of the other extraordinary features of the moment is that the kind of old pieties about what you're allowed to do and what are thinkable um, are really under question because they have to be under question because... And how are you going to pay for that? Well, <laughs> right, exactly. And how are you going to pay for that? No, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, since Amy and I wrote the article, it's interesting to you start looking around sort of the academic economics world. You see, you see that a lot of the sort of pitting of the control of the epidemic versus Great Depression 2.0 is not coming necessarily from people who are trained economists, but from people from Wall Street and the financial industry. Larry Cohen, um, Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. I don't even know what Stephen Moore is at the w Wall Street Journal. Um, Lloyd Blankfein. You know, Lloyd Blankfein, Larry Kudlow. N nobody's trained in economics. Uh, but then you start looking around and you see and, and, you, and you see liberal ec economists like Jason Furman or Austin Goolsby being very clear. This is not like the 2008 uh, financial crisis and that the first law of virus economics, as Austin Goolsby says, is to stop the virus. And Jason Furman, in a recent article, says talks nothing about sort of the, the, the corporate bailouts uh, that are part of the, the, stim the stimulus or emergency bill, as we call it, but talks about sort of a massive infusion in, in public health scale up and uh, support of sort of average people to weather the storm. And so I think there may be I'm an optimist, and I think that even sort of sort of liberal economists that that sort of surrounded the Obama administration, surround Joe Biden, are even thinking of of new ways to think about how we 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 respond to crises like this. I mean, then you have Sayers and Zuckman at Berkeley talking about income replacement stuff that's happening in Europe, but you know we would never con consider here. And so maybe they're outliers in sort of the 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 academic economics world. But I think you know we may be seeing a shift um, from the sort of classic you know, 80s Chicago school economists who, who, for whom the market was all. But, you know, again, it's, it's, the, it's the long game and the slow game, and we have to move the debate and the rhetoric in, in the field to something that, as Amy says, you know, promotes an, uh, a, a politics and an ethics of care. Greg, you've been really outspoken on Twitter, and I really do recommend that everyone follow you on Twitter. Your, your feed has been essential in recent weeks. You've been really outspoken criticizing the media's attachment to, to false balance, this he said, she said journalism, particularly when it comes to the political coverage of Trump's response. Well, one headline that you that you singled out from The New York Times was Trump suggests lack of testing is no longer a problem, period. Governors disagree period. But 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 you say this goes way beyond headlines and into more fundamentally how entire stories are being framed and organized. 
say a little about about what you've seen in both text and TV media, why you think it's so dangerous in the face of Trump's distressingly high approval ratings, and and why you think that the media is so committed to this model of coverage. You know, I'm I, I'm not a communications expert or media expert, but you know, I think all the issues we've been talking about, all the sort of you know, perhaps slow evolution and sort of economic thinking, even in the academy, what hasn't really changed is sort of the Patty Chayefsky network version of the media that we've gotten in the 21st century, in which it's news is infotainment and the Punch and Judy show, where you have a panel which sort of debates both sides of an issue, just because it's fun to see people fight in public. <laughs> um, and so the, the, the coverage on in the New York Times in particular on the political desk and also for places like Politico and the Washington Post political reporters tend to sort of take the president at his word and at face value. President says, we, ha- we haven't heard about problems with testing for two weeks. The governors disagree. Is one of those statements true? Is one of them false? Does one of them have more um, basis in evidence than the other? The, the reporters tend not to want to go there. Um, and it's something that Dean Beckett has said in, in, in his own words that we don't tell our readers what to think. We put both sides out there and we let them decide what, 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 what the answer is. Even though these reporters know what the correct answer is, they are. It is true that the media is a liberal media. It's not a left wing media, but it is a liberal media. They know the president is full of shit. <laughs> well, Joan Didion wrote an article around the Iran counter hearings in the New York Review of Books called The Deferential Spirit. And, you know, she says this, so I, I can just sort of channel her. But she talks about how the DC press corps, you know, they all think of themselves as sort of good good guys and gals. And, you know, we go to the same cocktail parties. You know, we went to the same schools. That Washington is a fundamentally decent town. Um, I think, I don't know what they were drinking or smoking, but, you know, the, the, the culture of political journalism in D.C. is not about calling people to task. And it, it shocked me when I read this Didion article because it's it's close to 25 years old and she was complaining about the things we're complaining about today. So I don't know. I, I think there's something to be said about reconstructing a, a progressive media that doesn't sort of operate on the sidelines in sort of the margins of web-based or internet uh, blogs and, and, and podcasts, uh, but really sort of uh, starts to sort of reform the sort of mainstream institutions that really are operating with a, a sort of 80s, 90s mold of, of political reporting that clearly is failing in the context of this pandemic, but was failing. Look, people like Jay Rosen at, at NYU and others have said, you know, the press has been totally unprepared to deal with sort of Trump's manipulation of facts and manipulation of the media. And uh, we're just seeing it all come home to roost over the past few days. What do you think, Amy? I, I'm particularly what really worries me about all this is what appears to be the media's eagerness to give Trump every opportunity to appear presidential in a time of national crisis. I mean, Trump doesn't take take them up on the opportunity, but he, but they seem to want to allow that to take place. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the really um, kind of frightening things about the current moment is how I think well attuned Trump is to how media works. You know, he's our media mogul president, right? right? He understands how media works. And so one way to think about what he's doing now is he's casting about, he's trying every different version of what a response might look like and uh, whatever strikes him at the moment, knowing at the end of the day that they can cut whatever clips they want and feed those to their supporters. And, uh, you know, they're never going to be held to account. And he, you know, he he has a, a kind of 
I think, an intuition about how vulnerable our media environment is to the kinds of the sort of totalitarian strategies that he is so inclined to. And, you know, there it's it's just doubling down on, I think, a deeper problem. We've seen this with climate change, right? It's not just about Trump, that the media chooses an ethic of neutrality over an ethic of objectivity, right? So same with torture. Right. So 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 the idea is there's two sides to every story. And our job is to illuminate the two sides. I mean, never mind that there's never just two sides, right? Um, and that there are there is a responsibility that journalists and the rest of us have to try to figure out what the state of the world actually is, right? And to be accountable for how it is that we describe the world. And, you know, even keeping in mind some of the kinds of important critiques of objectivity that that have been, you know, emerged in academic conversations over many, many years, we are not well served by a media that abandons the idea that there is an objective fact about how many tests there are right. in the state of Connecticut and how many we can do. And, you know, but what we have, and I think this is, it, it, I think things have gotten worse rather than better in response to Trump, because I, my instinct is, you know, the way I read what the way mainstream media is moving is that most of the media that wants to consider itself mainstream and mass is organizing itself, and the New York Times is very much in this way, to try to protect its claim to be at the center, right, at the political center, and therefore um, kind of moving still further from objectivity in many cases and towards a kind of new this false neutrality, which, you know, Trump is very good at setting up so that the conversation, you know, valorizes claims that are, you know, lunatic. Yeah, it seems like the mainstream media's overwhelming goal is to protect its reputation against the conservative charge that they are the liberal media. Right. I want to talk about the how the the history of AIDS activism and of ACT UP in particular and how that might inform how we approach the politics of this pandemic. Perhaps the most overwhelming thing that came across of many powerful things watching the documentary How to Survive a Plague was that so many people organized so militantly in the face of mass death, including so many who are organizing in the face of their own nearly certain death. How did the presence of death, which is something that's so terrifying and sad and that can understandably be so immobilizing, how did that in the the 1980s and and early 90s heyday of ACT UP, how did that instead catalyze people into action? We had no choice, right? We had no choice. You know, you either sort of took to your bed and died like a 19th century literary hero or heroine, um, or you, or you, you, you sort of fought to your last breath. And a lot of the activists in How to Survive a Plague, like Bob Rahefsky and others, um, really to the, really to the last minute were, were on the front line, sort of trying to, to, to make change, even knowing that it was probably going to pass them by and not be enough in time to save them. And so it'll be interesting to see how ordinary people respond to this crisis. I think some people are like, you know, we all got to pull together. He's our president. I'm channeling my mother here and that we'll get through this. Um, but we just sort of have to keep our heads down and, and do what do what we're told. I think, you know, it's pretty clear in the two pieces in the Boston Review that Amy and I wrote together is that that's probably the worst possible thing to do. And that building a new politics of care, sort of pushing us through the sort of lingering neoliberal moment is where we need to go. And it's going to be, uh, it's really a, 
community organizing exercise. And maybe as the death toll mounts over the next few weeks, people will get angrier and um, be willing to act up. But the thing about this epidemic is that it could be something that sort of lasts for a few months into next year and, and people go back to their normal lives and feel invulnerable, even though nothing what we're doing today in terms of social distancing and the, the sort of deaths we're seeing in our healthcare facilities and in our hospitals makes you think like it's a normal moment. Amy? Well, I think that one of the things about ACT UP, and I was not involved in the early years, but I've been involved in ACT UP in the more recent iterations and treatment activism, is that organizing builds deep bonds of community and it, it really can provide a kind of meaning for our lives together that aren't available in ordinary moments. I think there are many people who can think back on their sort of lives who have been involved in organizing, who, despite all the struggles of, of moments where there's some real peril against which they're organizing, find those to be among the most meaningful of their lives, right? So I think that one of the things that we do as people is we make meaning together. And we do that in some ways with the most passion when things are really at stake, right? And so, I mean, I don't know what your lives are like over the last couple of weeks, but I've been, you know, kind of marveling at how much interconnection there is, uh, you know, how many people are having, you know, Zoom play dates with their kids and, you know, friends. And like, so people are really trying to, I think, one of the one of the hard things about the, 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 the social distancing, and I think many of us think we should call it physical distancing and not social distancing, because, you know, we really don't have to be socially isolated from one another, um, is that it, it, it can work to disrupt some of the ways in which we build ties together to, to, to organize both in the short term and the long term. And so there's also, you know, I think things about who this affects that because we are a society that's in some ways quite stratified by age, both politically, but also kind of just in an ordinary geographic kind of daily life way, you know, that, that many of the, the, the ways that the kind of AIDS activism worked was that you know, the kind of affected communities also in many ways had overlaps with affective communities, right? So that people who in the queer community were affected, um, you know, had had and built strong networks together and that were part of the gay rights movement. And so I think one of the questions, you know, as we think about this is how to build certain kinds of affective communities that can organize together, give us the sort of meaning that we're all looking for out of such a moment of crisis. And um, and it's going to look different than ACT UP did, not just because we can't go out and do die-ins in the way that we once did. And it probably isn't a great time to go do civil disobedience and get arrested. But there have to be, you know, forms of, I think, creative protest that we think about. I don't know, Greg, if you've been thinking about some of the ways this might unfold as this extends, but also not beyond beyond the sort of immediate protest, building of those sort of affective communities that can help us build sort of more of these durable forms of kind of knowledge and interconnection that can help be the basis for that organizing over the long term. Yeah, Greg, I'd like to hear your, your thoughts on this because with ACT UP, it was about people putting their their bodies on the line, including bodies that were racked with disease and bodies that were dying. And it was this very powerful form of protest that was incredibly disruptive, incredibly uncivil, massive civil disobedience of this really militant sort, people locking arms to push through 
and confront police lines, climbing buildings to drop banners, loudly disrupting a church service in St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York, dumping dumping people's ashes onto George H.W. Bush's White House lawn. And ACT UP, of course, stands for the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and it's it's really palpable watching how to survive a plague. The, the importance of people coming together and in that process of coming together, coming to understand their own collective power. Explain the power of ACT UP's tactics and how we might think through taking powerful actions today, given, as Amy was just saying, that street protest is is largely impossible, or at least not possible in the ways that it was, because our survival requires that we maintain physical distance. Protest and ACT UP were, were formerly nothing new. We borrowed from the nonviolent protest movement of the 1960s, which borrowed from the, the Indian independence movement before that. And so civil disobedience and nonviolent civil disobedience is a long history in American and, and global sort of resistance. You know, what's interesting to me is that when we stormed the NIH or seized control of the FDA, nobody had ever done that before. So it was shocking to the people in those buildings and who held those levers of power uh, over drug development or, or AIDS research. Um, and it, it shook them. Uh, it shook them enough to open the doors to, to bring the activists in to, to help sort of reform drug development and research policy. But I think while direct uh, civil disobedience and, and sort of classic getting arrested situations were, were important, for instance, in the preventing the ACA repeal from from moving forward. Uh, I think we're going to need to get creative now um, and creative both because we don't have the opportunity to do sort of uh, bodies on the line protest, um, but also because, you know, the the media environment isn't the same as it was during the eight days of ACT UP where our protests would end up on the front page of newspapers or on one of the three evening broadcasts because that, that was all there was in terms of getting your news. So I was looking, you know, there's a guy named Robin Bell who does a lot of multimedia projection in DC. And there's another group called the Illuminators in New York. And the, the Illuminators in New York the other day went on one building, one skyscraper in New York and projected onto the side of another vast skyscraper in New York, canceled the rent. Uh, I think Robin Bell also projected where are the tests uh, onto a, a, the side of a large building in Washington, D.C. And so that is social distancing, but a message was seen by anybody who could go to their windows that night. And it was then retweeted and sent across social media in the days afterwards. So there's creative ways to sort of get the attention of the city you live in or the town you live in without putting yourself or your community at risk. Uh, here in Connecticut, activists did a honkathon um, and went and drove around the local prison uh, in terms of trying to get attention to the plight of the incarcerated in the context of COVID-19, in their cars with their signs, acting up uh, on behalf of inmates, but again, in a situation which didn't put them at bodily harm in terms of, of transmission of the disease, but they were heard. They were probably heard louder than than, than sort of uh, a chanted protest outside in front of the prison itself because the horns were blaring as they circled the prison again and again and again. So. I think we have to figure out what is, um, there's a book called Beautiful Trouble, which is sort of a little handbook of sort of creative ways to think about uh, resistance. And I think we're going to have to get creative. Just because we're sitting at home doesn't mean um, we're, we're powerless. And we have to think about what we can mobilize from our chair or um, in small enough groups that we're not putting our communities at risk or putting ourselves and our, and our, and our comrades at risk. A major focus of ACT UP was protesting public health authorities at the 
the FDA and the CDC and insisting on politicizing medicine and politicizing public health and politicizing expertise, including by by making all of those expert discussions a matter of of public debate and contestation by by activists developing their own plans and their own expertise, including, of course, what you were very much at the center of, Greg, with the Treatment Action Group. But so far as yet, with with the politics of with coronavirus, the politics of expertise have been somewhat different. You have you have these right wing attacks on expertise and liberals typically demanding that politicians follow the science and insistence that expertise not be politicized. And so the liberal critique of Trump's handling of the crisis has often been a technocratic one and not for no reason. Trump is a murderous failure in terms of his incompetence. But how should we be thinking about the politics of expertise? You know, so look, the we weren't contesting expertise in the early days of ACT UP. We were contesting the fact that nobody was doing anything. And um, when we went into the NIH and the FDA, what we quickly learned was that you couldn't shout a cure out of a test tube, for instance. And so we started to do our homework. And we realized that there were there were, there were gaps in sort of um, the way clinical trials were done or the way the drugs were approved because it was done this way for the past 20 years. And we started becoming students of the, of the sort of regulatory apparatuses um, that we were we were critiquing. Um, and there's a scene in How to Survive a Plague uh, where Susan Ellenberg, who was then at the FDA, says, you know, she picked up an active treatment agenda and was reading sort of our ideas about parallel track and about how to sort of do uh, trials without placebo controls. And she said, don't we do this already? And she, she realized... She, it's a, there's a very funny scene in the movie where she's like, you know, all these guys and Doc Martens and buzz cuts, and she's a little bit afraid to sort of go over and talk to us. But, you know, she became a, a quite an ally because, you know, there were people in the scientific community who realized, you know, certain things are done out of convention or the way we do things, or there's there's sort of roadblocks in the science um, that are, are too difficult for an individual scientist to sort of surmount. And, you know, there's a group in New York called the COVID-19 Working Group. It's a lot of old ACT UP people, but some young new people too. And they're doing exactly what we did back then. They're like, where, where, where the hell are these tests? You know, what's going in sort of the pipeline of, of new antibody tests to, to start to look at the, the exposed and recovered individuals from COVID-19. And so a lot of this is happening again. I think it was a critique of expertise back then. And I don't think it's one now. I think we honored expertise, but we just thought it needed to be better. In this case, we, we see sort of a, a deep, deep disgust of expertise you know, by the president himself. Um, and he's surrounded himself again with, you know, these people who are not economists. And then there are people like Richard Epstein, um, who is a constitutional, uh, libertarian constitutional scholar at a law school, but is writing about sort of these bizarre theories of virology and the immunology of HIV and coronavirus infection that are got the, got the year of Jared Kushner and Larry Ellison from Oracle talking to, Jared Kushner about, you know, how he's going to revolutionize drug discovery and drug design in the era of coronavirus, um, which is all just sort of pseudoscience and, and quackery. Um, and so, you know, Donald Trump looks like a Tabo Mbeki for the 21st century, the South African president who denied HIV was the cause of AIDS and was, you know, trawling the internet, you know, at three in the morning with a whiskey in his hand, you know, reading all the pseudoscience and making it national policy. So I don't think ACT UP was against expertise. I think we we were trying to make it better. And in this case, we're fighting a 
sort of anti-intellectual, anti-expertise, anti-science White House, which was not really what was happening in the context of the early AIDS epidemic. It's a it's really a hallmark of neoliberal society that businessmen and economists think that they're experts on everything. So, right. And so one question about expertise is who is deemed to have it and who isn't, right? And yet there's also a way, and this was the Richard Epstein moment, where people who aren't even serious about the question, right, belly up to the table and start spouting absolute nonsense about what they think. You know, so, so I mean, it's a, it's a very complicated question, I guess. I think one way to think about the, the role of expertise in a democracy is that you cannot have a democracy without expertise, because democracy is not just about a kind of system of, of, of voting or political voice. It's also about organizing a society that collectively meets our needs. And you can't collectively meet our needs without all kinds of expertise. And that expertise matters. There's very few of us who don't wish our doctor to be an expert, right? We want that. <laughs> we want a form of expertise because expertise gives us power to achieve the things that we want to achieve. But of course, there's a dilemma, right? Because expertise always bears the possibility of kind of separating itself from a kind of democratic authority or warrant that gives rise to the need for expertise, right? And I think there's just this sort of an inevitable dynamic. And this is, this is how I've come to think about it in the work that I've done over many years on drug development, on pharma, on access to medicines, right? Is that there's ways in which we absolutely want expertise and yet the relationship between what experts do and prioritize, and our democratic system is constantly being renegotiated. It can't be too close. You don't want Congress turning around and saying, well, let's allocate money for this kind of research and not that kind of research at a very high level of detail, because that doesn't give the kind of proper authority to people who need to be able to speak with systemat through sort of systematic knowledge production about the kinds of things we need to know, for example, about pandemic preparedness, right? And yet, if there's no relationship at all, if there's no means of holding experts accountable, there can become a kind of separation between what experts become obsessed and interested in and what people actually need experts to be accountable for and doing in our society. And I think one way to think about what ACT UP did is ACT UP brought accountability to the kind of expertise that it desperately needed, but that wasn't being deployed in the right way way and with the right set of priorities. And it did that in multiple ways. It did that by creating enormous political heat that brought people on the inside who shared some of their values around to a different way of thinking. Um, and it did that in part by some of those activists, people like Greg, themselves becoming deep experts. And that's an interesting model, I think, for, for activism, because you don't all have to become experts. But I think to not respect that we all need a kind of accountable form of expertise is to make a big mistake. Because, you know, there's none of us in our lives who don't want it. That doesn't mean that there aren't problems with it and that there aren't real risks that experts come kind of detached from or any kind of democratic authority or warrant. And that's the, that's the kind of endless uh, tension that we have to navigate. And, you know, even in this moment, you know, we, we haven't seen, for example, much reporting or data about the impact of COVID in a way that tracks socioeconomic status, race, class, and so forth. That, that's a shame. We need experts to be accounting for the ways in which this virus is going to decimate in ways that are predictably going to vary according to socioeconomic lines for all kinds of reasons, including that disease is already differentially distributed according to socioeconomic lines, right? So we absolutely need to still work on keeping expertise accountable 
and their and the importance of having many voices contribute to the kinds of claims that experts have to respond to and so forth. But the the kind of uh, notion that everyone is an expert and that being contrarian and this is the kind of Epstein story is itself adequate to demand a response. Uh, that's obviously you know sort of a, a waste of time. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism by Megan Day and Micah Utrecht. The political ambitions of the movement behind Bernie Sanders have never been limited to winning the White House. Since Bernie first entered the presidential primaries in 2016, his supporters have worked to organize a revolution intended to encourage the active participation of millions of ordinary people in political life. In Bigger Than Bernie, activist writers Megan Day and Micah Utrecht give us an intimate map of this emerging movement to remake American politics top to bottom, profiling the grassroots organizers who are building something bigger and more ambitious than the career of any one candidate. Bigger Than Bernie offers unmatched insights into the people behind this unique campaign and a clear-eyed sense of how the movement can sustain itself for the long haul. Bigger Than Bernie, How We Go From the Sanders Campaign to Democratic Socialism by Megan Day and Micah Utrecht. Out now from Verso Books. Incredibly, Dr. Anthony Fauci was at the center of the ACT UP story and the story of the early AIDS crisis because he was, at the time, running the NIH's response. And at first, Fauci was an explicit target of ACT UP protests. But then, if I understand correctly, he became more of an ally. And today, he he's seen as the most credible public health figure proximate to the White House. By contrast, Dr. Deborah Burks has really discredited herself by repeating Trump's lies. Both Fauci and Burks obviously have this narrow tightrope to walk where they need to be careful to avoid being kicked off of Trump's island, but but they've they've approached this challenge in very different ways. I, explain who Fauci and Burks are and what you make of the divergent ways they've handled the situation. So Anthony Fauci has been the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases for, you know, as long as I can remember, beginning of the AIDS epidemic all the way through the current date. That means he manages the entire NIH's research portfolio on anything dealing with infectious diseases. And he's an infectious disease physician and scientist himself, focusing on HIV, but with a portfolio that includes everything from bacterial to viral infections, protozoal infections, any bug, Dr. Fauci is there. Deborah Burks was uh, a scientist in his lab who ended up being a central figure in the Army's AIDS vaccine program for many years and Walter Reed Army Research Institute, um, where Robert Redfield actually could have been found in the, the early 
the, the late 80s, early 90s. Um, so there's a whole sort of group of alumni from the AIDS epidemic who are uh, now circling around the current uh, coronavirus pandemic. A couple of things. One is Ambassador Burks, Deb, Deb Burks is, it has said some really sort of horrible things over the past few days about, you know, the percentage of the United States that, you know, has not seen very many uh, coronavirus cases at all. Uh, but when she talks about it, you know, which she doesn't, she fails to tell us that actually when you talk about it in population terms, the 40% of America that's not seeing cases represents 7% of the population. Or she challenges the notion that there is a shortage of ventilators or other needed equipment for our hospitals. You see her going in and out a little bit of the science and then the appeasement of the president and, and his need to, to hear that everything's okay, uh, you know, culminating with a uh, presentation of hers on the Christian Broadcasting Network, where she, she, she fawned over his ability to sort of understand scientific data and understand the science that was put before him. Between the two of them, they are our last best hope for a science-based approach to the epidemic. And as I've sort of reflected over the past few days, Tony has a credibility that comes both with his long leadership in sort of the infectious disease epidemics across the world and and the U.S. response, and he he's been on the in in the spotlight like this before. He was sort of out front and center with Ebola, um, H1N1, etc. Ambassador Burks, you know, was a researcher. More lately, has been sort of the the leader of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, um, but has not been thrust into a role like this. And I do think that in order to sort of maintain your membership in the circle of president's closest advisors, there is. Um, self-abasement that you have to do to sort of uh, maintain your bona fides with the president. Um, I also think that because she's a she's the only woman in that inner circle, um, that I think she probably faces a, a greater uphill battle to, in dealing with Vice President Pence, Robert Redfield, uh, Jerome Adams, all who have not spoken out against the president uh, in any real terms about the science where Deb has. Um, so I do think Fauci has a little bit more seniority and has been able to sort of be a little bit more um, steadfast in his sort of defense of the sort of scientific basis of the policies that they're pronouncing. But he's he's done his own genuflection at the president's uh, feet over, over the past few weeks. So um, I do think Deb has had a few stumbles over the past week or so, but I, I do think between the two of them, we're really relying on them to, to, to hold the line on sort of this, a scientific approach to the epidemic. Amy, what do you what do you make of it? Because Greg, it does sound like you're maybe a little more hesitant to to criticize her than than you were initially when she was saying certain things that we all wish she wouldn't say. No, she just goes in. It, it, she's going in and out, like you know. Yeah. It's it's like you can see that there's something going on. I know she's a scientist. I know she's a, a, a good scientist, and I know that some of the stuff she cannot possibly believe. Um, but I think she's in real time trying to assess. Um, her public responsibilities and and her consolidation of power uh, in terms to to help make decisions in this epidemic. You know, as Tony Fauci said to John Cohn from Science Magazine, what do you want me to do, you know, John? Do you want me to, like, you know, wrestle him <laughs> to the ground? It's like, you know, it's like th- neither of them can do that. They, they're they walking a, a tightrope. Remember, t- Fauci is, is well hated by the, the right-wing media right now, uh, yes. even, though, even though Tony is probably a Republican. So... I might put it just slightly differently than than what Greg just did and say, you know, one of the smartest things that a, a really good insider ever said to me in the AIDS work that I did is 
you know, those of you shouting on the outside make my job work. If you don't have pressure from the outside, for example, condemning you if you depart from the science, then you have less space to work on the inside. I mean, I think, Greg, you're pointing to some really important dynamics that everybody on the inside is thinking that they're like they're like these hostages in a situation where they can't say what they really think because they'll lose the one kind of central kind of contribution that they believe that they can make to making the situation better. And there's a certain inevitability about that process. It's part of how power reproduces itself, right? It's, it's, um, you see it in lots of institutions and not just in the current moment, but Trump amplifies it to like the thousand degrees because he, you know, has this kind of loyalty mania and so forth, where obviously all of the people around him are twerking what they're doing, hoping that if they do it just enough, they'll help be able to right the ship um, and sort of live out their own personal ethics. Uh, with respect to this response. But I think we can't think about them as people who we sort of have to put our faith in, but rather as people who we have to ourselves hold accountable precisely so that they have more room to do the right thing and not less. I mean, I think if Trump, the way that Trump ends up is, of course, shaped by the things that he hears around him every day, but far more by what's going on in the broader political environment and the deluge of criticism, uh, as well as the production of a basic set of facts about what was going to happen if they turned everything back on at Easter, I think was very much behind the recent repivot that Trump made. And that's not without some role played by those insiders, but I don't think we should think of it as generated by them. And I don't think we should think about their personal ethics as kind of central to how their response is going to run, but rather about the context in which which they sit and about the degree to which we can hold them accountable to, for doing the right thing by criticizing them, in fact. And so I think those criticisms are really important. They're, of course, painful for those people, but, uh, but they're really important because they're, in fact, how good people on the inside understand themselves to be given more space for the point of view that they're trying to espouse. Amy, I think one area, returning to something we were talking about a few minutes ago, one area where ACT UP was demanding that certain conventionally expert decisions be opened up to democratic contestation was in terms of the the political economy of pharmaceutical research and development. What what diseases were considered important and profitable to research treatments for and which were, which were not? And I was thinking about that recently when I read an article about coronavirus vaccines and saw this comment from Yale School of Public Health professor Jason Schwartz that that one reason it will take us so long to develop a coronavirus vaccine today is because it wasn't deemed profitable to do so in the past. And so research has to more or less start from scratch, or at least relatively start from scratch. He, he said, quote, we have a pattern in our medical research landscape in which outbreaks lead to a surge in research investment. And if and when those outbreaks wane, as they invariably do, other priorities take their place. As a result, you lose those opportunities to capitalize on that initial investment, and the cycle starts over again. What was ACT UP's critique of the pharmaceutical system, and to what extent does it remain relevant today? One way to think about the critique, and I think it began in ACT UP, but really extended throughout the broader kind of global treatment action movement, is that you know, a market-driven system for developing therapeutics is going to prioritize what the market can profit from. And to some extent, 
this the, the acute form of the critique didn't emerge until the activism went global. And that was in part because we became aware of, I think, as a kind of community, that there were all kinds of diseases for which there were no treatments at all. And that the reason that we had treatments for HIV was not only that there was tremendous activism that pushed through some of the political barriers, but because there were so many people in the global north that were affected by HIV, that it was a profitable kind of enterprise to do. So the sort of basic issue about the disconnect between profit motive and the kind of value of people's lives in a human sense, including globally, um, is, is sort of part of what that critique looks like. I mean, there's other pieces, and maybe Greg wants to speak to them about the way that evidence is mobilized and the, the sort of need for discipline and sort of work against conflicts of interest. You know, pharmaceutical companies are producing the data about their own products, and that creates enormous conflicts of interest that have led to many, many problems over the years, right? That's another piece of what it means to sort of privatize the last stage of research, which is more or less what we've done. We haven't privatized the early research. A lot of that is done by government. We privatized some of the later stages. And that leads both to very high prices, and that was a big focus of the early act up work, um, and also to failures in the evidence base, failures to make evidence open, failures to, in fact, ask questions sometimes the right way, or to uh, be honest about what the evidence holds. So there's multiple pieces of it. There's questions about, you know, whether we're doing the kind of research that really benefits us all, and that prioritizes our health needs in a way that has some, again, rough relationship to what we would prioritize in a democratic sensibility. There's questions about how the evidence is developed and who has control over it. And there's questions about how a privatized system also prices medicines at the end of the day. So all of those, I think, we're going to see reproduced in the context of coronavirus. So, you know, as you point out, and Jason's absolutely right, that the kind of history of pandemic preparedness is that we prepare at moments when there's a pandemic uh, kind of looming, and then we, you know, sort of lose political will. I mean, I think one thing that you have to fold into that story is the sort of starve the beast mentality about a sort of attack on the state that is is characteristic of neoliberalism. I mean, it's sort of an attack on the idea that we need to prepare and and think long term in ways that you know sort of we are drastically short on at many ordinary political times, right? So we do need to think about how to allow sort of more long-term investment in scientific priorities that will sustain us and not simply sort of either follow the money or follow the political nature of the moment. And we also need to think about how to make evidence uh, open and how to design trials well and then how to make things affordable at the end of the day. And all of those things are going to come into play here um, just as they did in the context of, of HIV AIDS. So... You know, I think there's certain things we do pretty well in the United States and, and could do better, but certain things we do pretty poorly. And I think National Institutes of Health enjoys bipartisan support. Um, it funds a wide variety of research from HIV to coronaviruses, but, you know, every sort of disease you can imagine. Amy and my joint friend, Addie Barkan, talked about needing to double the NIH budget like we did in the 90s again. There are far more researchers than there is money to give to them. So, And, and I'm not saying this because I'm just a researcher. I'm just saying this because our capacity to, to do better and to do good um, is hampered by public investment in, in biomedical research, which in some cases we're, we're losing sort of the biomedical arms race to, to other countries, particularly in Asia, that are starting to 
to invest more in biomedical sciences than we do in the U.S. The one thing we we're terrible at is this last phase of research that Amy's talking about, and it's drug de- drug development and taking drugs to market because we end up with a lot of Me Too drugs. We end up with these monopolists like Gilead Pharmaceuticals, who Amy and I have sort of battled with over time, where a drug like Phosphorvir for hepatitis C, which they got from a small biotech uh, for $15 billion, you know, goes on the market at the price the market can bear. And part of me is thinking now and is, and I'm not, you know, Amy said this at different times of other people is that we're going to need to think about how to build a public sector drug vaccine device industry, because what we were clearly saw, what we've seen now is that we don't have nearly enough research and development at the, at the far end of the development spectrum on, on vaccines for, for potential pandemic diseases, basic commodities like ventilators and masks, you know, or, or sort of, um, real drug development in terms of, of treatments for coronaviruses or other sort of rare infections that might be important, uh, on a public health level, but really don't have any commercial appeal. So I don't know. I'm, I'm more and more sort of, you know, over the past two weeks thinking, you know, I wish we had a public sector, uh, pharmaceutical and research and development sector that could not tie us in in such um, dependency to sort of these big corporations who often do what's good for them and not good for us. I mean, one of the interesting things about the current moment, too, I think, is that you see some of that extends to manufacturing and not just to science, right? That, you know, we really do need to rethink some of the ways in which the failures of the current moment to produce masks and ventilators, right? That these kinds of things have to kind of get us to refocus our attention, not just on sort of high-tech science and its ability to deliver us, but on sort of basic, ordinary, productive capacities and how well we organize them to build and meet needs at a current moment like this. Even more generally, in terms of the healthcare system as a whole, one thing that really stuck out to me from the the film is how ACT UP was was really squarely focused on fighting a healthcare system that, that devalued gay lives and so let people, like gay people with AIDS, die but but the response to this very particular injustice was among other things this universal demand that healthcare be treated as a human right what did act up see the aids crisis as exposing about the healthcare system and as a whole and also the larger socioeconomic inequities that determined life and death in the US more broadly and to what extent were those problems ever substantively fixed? Because obviously not only is the AIDS crisis still with us, but but we are still living with a fundamental and more generalized healthcare crisis too. And I should add that's true both domestically and, and also globally, perhaps even more true globally. If you look at the iconography of ACT UP um, from the posters at the time, we were pointing out back then that, you know, we spend five I can't remember what the figure was, but five times as much on defense as we do in healthcare in the United States. Uh, we talked about the fact that it was gay men, people of color, people who use drugs uh, who were affected, and, and therefore, you know, by Independence Day on July fourth, nineteen eighty nine, you know, there were fifty five thousand people dead. With the idea that um, the health of some people matters in the U.S., but the health of others doesn't. I think that critique is this is very tied to the critique Amy and I make in in our Boston Review pieces. And even despite of the ACA, um, we still leave too many people outside of our circle of care. And Amy started this conversation about thinking about the incarcerated 
and how they are at supreme risk right now in our nation's prisons and jails. But we could also think about the undocumented. We could talk about the homeless. We could talk about the underinsured and still underinsured, uh, even post-Obamacare. And so we haven't solved these these issues. Um, and we still have a constitutive resistance to thinking that we can get by unlike many of the sort of welfare states in Europe with a safety net that's in tatters and in a trade because um, we'll never need it in a, in a way that uh, other places clearly understand that they do. And now we've seen that people are falling through the, through the, through the gaps in our safety net and that, you know, this we'll see, t- you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of deaths in this country, which probably could have been prevented if we had a more robust public health and person-focused healthcare system in this country. Um, and so the healthcare crisis we saw in the 80s is the same healthcare crisis today. We haven't made any sort of substantive shifts in the way we think about uh, how we relate to our uh, our fellow uh, brothers and sisters across the American continent. So it's you know, the Affordable Care Act was a great advance, but it didn't take us far enough. Uh, and we're seeing sort of the weaknesses of our inability to sort of complete the race uh, to get across the finish line today in the context of the coronavirus pandemic. I think one thing we also should keep in mind is that although we have a, we don't even have a healthcare system right now, we have also come a long, a long distance. We've come a long distance in this country with respect to the question of healthcare, and you know, you saw that in the in the debate about the repeal of the ACA, when part of what Republicans were doing was refusing to say that they wanted to kick people off of health insurance, uh, because that's no longer really a political winning idea in this country, and. You know, if you look back to Melinda Cooper's book, for example, about neoliberalism and family values, incredible book. You see that in the incredible book, and if you you see in the early years of the AIDS epidemic that there were many Republicans who said, "Look, health insurance is a moral hazard. People aren't going to behave themselves if you give them insurance." And you see how legible that kind of argument still is today with respect to the moral hazard of giving people unemployment insurance. Gosh, people aren't going to work if you give them unemployment insurance, right? It's not that the argument's gone away. Um, but it has not the, it does not have the purchase it once had with respect to health. And that's very much because of the kind of mobilizations that groups like ACT UP did and the disability rights movement. Um, so, so there's been really profound shifts, I think, um, with respect to what it is that people demand and expect the state to do. But of course, what we've produced, and this is the product of our sort of tortured political system, is an incredibly uh, sort of jury-rigged version of a healthcare system that has doesn't have the ability to provide us with the kind of basic things that we need. But, you know, I think one of the things that we should should also see as we see the disasters, right, is see the ways that change has happened. And it's not all going to be doom and gloom because organizing actually really does work. In terms of this relationship between particular and universal harms and particular and universal politics. One thing that I've been thinking about is how homophobia most proximately facilitated AIDS killing a lot of gay people. But what it also did was facilitated a lack of political commitment to dealing with an AIDS crisis that would go on to kill tons of people who were not necessarily gay. And you write that the same sort of thing has happened historically with the healthcare system as as a whole in terms of in terms of racism you write quote 
efforts to expand health coverage across the United States have always run into the country's deep commitment to white supremacy and racism. For instance, in the 1940s, Southern Democrats conditioned their votes for the Hospital Survey and Construction Act on a rule that states be allowed to allocate resources locally so that they could drive new hospital construction away from African-American communities. When the Supreme Court willfully gutted the Affordable Care Act's provision mandating the expansion of Medicaid to low-income Americans in all U.S. states, only some states took advantage of this. For their part, insurers, hospitals, and the pharmaceutical industry were always all in for a decentralized and weak system. And I think this is a really, really important point, both in terms of the politics of healthcare and just politics more generally, because racism, or in the case of of the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s, homophobia, these kind of things always function not only to legitimate making certain others more disposable and vulnerable, but, and I think this is the point where the liberal critique begins and ends, is on that point, which is not incorrect but insufficient, but that racism and these other things also work, as you both point out, to critically undermine politics for universal protections that benefit the vast majority. And I want to read another quote. You write, quote, Conservatives worked hard to bring this about, always implying that the safety net they were shredding was for someone else, someone darker, at a distance, and less deserving. But as coronavirus is here to tell us, even those who think they can opt out by virtue of their wealth or status rely on public health infrastructure that keeps us all healthy and safe. And as you mentioned, those most vulnerable are are the homeless or people confined to retirement homes, prisons, immigration detention centers. They're the immigrant workers denied any of the state aid that was recently passed by Congress. Workers who must care for the sick and elderly, but who have no safety net or sick days to fall back on themselves. And COVID exposes this, how we're all weaker for how cruel our society is to the most marginalized and oppressed. How, How do you analyze this connection between the universal and particular and and what what that reveals about how power operates in our society, both generally speaking and in terms of uh, of the current crisis. You know what I was struck about, you know, before this all sort of broke out into the pandemic, was the discussions at the end of last year about universalism versus means tested programs, whether it was about access to college or sort of the next step after the Affordable Care Act is Medicare for all or, or some sort of add on to the to the ACA. I, I just don't know where in our history the idea that some people deserve basic rights uh, and others don't comes from. And, you know, part of it you know goes to our sort of founding sin of slavery and, and the way, you know, people who were sort of professing a deep admiration for enlightenment values were, were able to sort of consider African-Americans uh, less than a whole human being. Um, and this has been the sort of contestation throughout all our history, is that there are people who don't deserve it, and as we say in the piece, that are darker, um, f- further away from us. And it's interesting, when you look at the the map of the slave states around the Civil War, and you look at the density of, of slave ownership back then, and you look at life expectancy maps in the United States in the current century, those maps overlay on top of each other. And so it doesn't um, surprise me that the sort of inequalities that are bred into the bone of the American experiment have left us with these inequalities that we seem to uh, be 
unwilling to break through and, and sort of confront uh, when many other countries that are constitutional democracies like ours or, or republics really have sort of made universal decisions about who gets access to health care and to other sorts of uh, key factors of the safety net. We're the only country, I mean, Amy can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not a historian or political scientist, but we, we've made a sort of an industry out of who who's allowed to get and who shouldn't get food assistance, welfare, education, healthcare. It seems like a uniquely American psychosis. I mean, I think one of the one of the things that I teach when I teach about political economy and law to my students is Cedric Robinson's work on racial capitalism. And I think the the sort of insight that, you know, racism is deeply central to how exploitation, the sort of shredding of the social safety net, the sort of putting people at risk so that they can be sort of subordinated to the profit motive uh, works is is deeply important and right, right? And so, you know, we can cite any number of examples that kind of are particular instances of how race was mobilized in order to kind of undermine a more universal approach to a problem or mobilized to delegitimate what it means to be the recipient of government benefits, um, even to denote what counts as a government benefit, right? Um, you know, that we, we see, you know, certain kinds of insurance as a government benefit and other kinds of, you know, the creation of our money supply, <laughs> the creation of corporate charters, you know, those aren't seen as government benefits, uh, even though they provide extraordinary benefit to the wealthy, right? So so, so race is just baked into the, the kinds of extreme patchwork of, you know, who counts as the appropriate subject of care and who doesn't. And a sort of interesting, I think one interesting dilemma is how to describe that in a way that both makes clear that this puts us all at risk, but also makes clear that some of us are still more at risk than others. And so then we're going to see this with coronavirus, right? I think it's really critical to, to show how putting prisoners at risk is going to make the control of spread in the community much harder. And yet, the risk is much greater for prisoners than for others, precisely because there's still a kind of gradient, a socioeconomic gradient that that, that puts those, you know, when there's a collapse, those at the bottom suffer most, right? So, so I think we sort of need to be able to hold on to both of those things at once, and also at the same time, hold on to the ways that forms of racism and other kinds of othering really are, are exploited by those who stand to gain from um, a system that, again, sort of provides care to some people and not to others, that marks them as the natural recipients of government largesse or not even of largesse, right, as simply the recipients of market dessert, uh, even though markets are created by government in every modern society and organized by government, right? So so I think we need to keep try to, try to hold together um, both of those things at once, the notion that that we are we are all rendered vulnerable by the kinds of ways that we fail to care for one another and that the the vulnerability isn't differentially is differentially distributed. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. I, I, I think that the big difference between liberal and left critiques of racism and homophobia is that liberals believe, believe basically often that racism is good for white people and that homophobia is good for straight people, whereas the leftist, leftist crit critique understanding would be that these forms of oppression and bigotry certainly 
harm the targeted, the explicitly targeted people the most. That's that's clear. But that they also harm most people, too, because th- there's a ironic confluence between the liberal and right wing understandings because the right also believes that racism is good for white people and that homophobia is good for straight people. Right. And if we're going to build a mass politics of care, we need to emphasize the ways in which people's fates are interconnected and the ways in which, for example, if we build out a pharmaceutical complex that doesn't produce evidence that is reliable, that's going to hurt all of us. And, you know, when you look at the kind of bizarre way in which conservatives, many of whom are in high risk groups because they're older, are spinning stories about how this pandemic uh, is is being made up. I mean, you really see the profound way that people's conceptual frameworks can blind them to their forms of interconnection. And, you know, I think we need to continue to reemphasize those forms of interconnection, but not let set sort of not ignore the specificities that make some people more vulnerable than others. A signature ACT UP slogan was and is silence equals death. How do you see the difference between then and now in terms of then in the heyday of ACT UP in the 80s and 90s, the activist goal was maybe to render something that was being invisibilized that was initially devastatingly hitting an incredibly stigmatized group, how to render that visible and politicize it versus what's happening today, which is that we need, I think, to make something that is so hyper-visible and that's ubiquitous and more immediately universal in its impact as a result of its kind of hyper-visibility and ubiquity it's hard to comprehend and think through. It's hard to make intelligible in a way that can be acted upon because COVID defines everything. It's this situation where there's no outside reference point beyond COVID. And so the challenge seems to be to make this cacophony legible, which is somewhat different from what ACT UP's challenge was in, in the 80s. How, how do you see this and, and how we might, might approach the problem? Well, look, ACT UP isn't a template for every health crisis that comes after it. And silence equals death was an early slogan in the uh, in the fight um, because it was disease. It was a disease that was ignored by the sort of general population because it affected horse, uh, horse fags and junkies, as my friend Greg Borderitz once said. The point is, is that now we have a, a health crisis, a pandemic that's visible to the entire world. All, all the countries across the globe. Um, but what we're not making visible is sort of the political determinants of, of this pandemic um, that sort of um, delivered us to this precipice as we write in the article and sort of are going to determine whether we uh, get out of it alive for many of us uh, and, and how severe it's going to be. And so making the politics of it legible uh, and unsilencing the sort of political determinants of health in the context of COVID-19 is going to be really important because people just want to sort of say, like, this is a virus, we're going to treat it as such and leave it to the healthcare workers uh, valiantly fighting in our emergency rooms and ICUs to deal with it. You know, we'll do our part uh, of social distancing until we don't. Um, But nobody's going to ask the harder questions about how did we get here uh, and where are we going? Uh, And that is a is a silence that I think we have to break through. Um, And and I do think the sort of slogan of silence equals death 
comes back into play because it's not a silence about the epidemic itself. It's about the silence about its roots. A central goal thing that ACT UP was trying to do was to hold particular people and institutions responsible for deaths, to loudly proclaim that that the blood was on the hands of the powerful and not on those gay people who, you know, according to the right, made you know uh, dangerous lifestyle choices and that it wasn't just some natural epidemic that was beyond human control. ACT UP took on the Catholic Church, hospitals, pharmaceutical companies, Jesse Helms, George H.W. Bush. To close out, what can we learn from this, the politics of identifying who and what to blame, given what's happening today, which is the strong tendency to to depoliticize the virus, as as you said, Greg, to to cast it as this force of nature, an act of God, to to interpret it or to interpret it through the the authoritarian framework of of wartime emergency. Well, I, mean, I think there's a broader issue in the making of politics, which is to make something the subject of politics, it has to be subject to some kind of human agency, right? And that's why it's so dangerous to imagine viruses as um, as not the the products of, of, in some sense, of humans, right? I mean, so obviously, in a very <laughs> simplistic way, this, you know, viruses are not made by us, but in a, in a, in the way that really matters, the way that they travel and the kind of impact that they have, they are made by us, right? And so, you know, this first denaturalization, there isn't a fixed number of people who have to die. You know, even the figures that uh, that, that epidemiologists um, spend such care to develop, like what's the R-naught of a disease? It's not a natural fact how infectious a virus is. It's a product of how we respond to it, right? I mean, there are pieces of it that are established by the biological capabilities of the virus, but a huge amount of the question is how do we respond to it? And so I think to be able to reveal the the coronavirus and disease more broadly as organized by social infrastructure and that its implications are going to be determined by us. That's a feature of health justice work more broadly, and it's a feature that's going to be really essential to thinking about the response to this particular crisis. I mean, it leads us back to our discussion about the sort of the political reporters in D.C. who aren't digging into the just sort of sort of astounding failure of us uh, of us to get our act together on, on coronavirus testing with a three month time lead between the outbreak of the epidemic in China and now, nor the sort of ongoing incapacity, it seems, to get ourselves to a place where we're going to be able to scale up the number of PCR tests and antibody tests and PPE and um, healthcare capacity to get us into the next phase where we can stop social distancing or, or lessen it a little bit. There seems to be no appetite among many journalists to sort of dig deeper and think about why we are at the place we were in, in very practical terms. You know, who made decisions at the CDC, in HHS, in the White House, in the Office of Management and Budget, who is still continuing to make these decisions? You know, we can talk about the sort of deeper structural issues that Amy and I try to go through in our pieces in the Boston Review to think about the sort of deeper politics of this pandemic. But there's a more proximate one uh, that we're really not seeing New York Times or Washington Post or, or, or CNN or sort of the big mainstream cable and, and print news outfits really have any appetite to do. They, they're in the same template 
of the way they've covered politics for the past 50 years, as you know, harken, I harken back to Didion and the Iran-Contra hearings. They refuse to treat this uh, as something that is ex- an existential threat to, to many people in this country and, and, to, uh, and could be an event that shapes our lives for the rest of it, the time we have on this earth and for the generations that come after us. And so the depolitization of, of the epidemic by the press corps and the people who are supposed to hold our leaders to account, the fourth estate, do we even need it? in the context of the way they, they've been performing. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to take day after day to see sort of the same old questions being asked in the same old ways. So there's a politics of blame, which is emotionally fulfilling in the short term, but I think there needs to be sort of an, uh, an analytics too, where you start to pull apart how the machine broke down to, to prepare us to get to this point. Uh, and, and that takes the person personalities out of it and starts to think about what we built uh, and if it was meant for our collective survival or putting on us a road, I think as Amy and I said, with a logic of death and destruction, that's late 20th century capitalism and 21st century neoliberalism. Well, Amy Kapczynski and Greg Gonzalez, thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. Greg Gonzalez is a professor in the Department of Epidemiology of Microbial Diseases at Yale School of Public Health and an AIDS activist for more than 30 years with groups like ACT UP and the Treatment Action Group. Amy Kapczynski is a professor of law at Yale Law School, co-founder of the Law and Political Economy blog, and co-director of the Yale Global Health Justice Partnership. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that he could not make the individual responsible for relations whose creature he socially remains, however much he may subjectively raise himself above them, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, these days often twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes or wherever, please also leave us a nice review. Those reviews ostensibly help introduce us to new listeners. But what does that the most, above all else, is you telling people you know about the show and why you like it. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. 